following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. We, we, we are doing a method of business ethics on the parish. This week is really not necessarily business ethics, but we, we because of the recent war in the Middle East, um, figured it's an apropos time to discuss um, and understand many of the issues that came up um, during the war and what the Torah perspective is on many of the issues. So it happens to be this week's Torah portion is Parashat Yishlach, okay, um, which is the actually the the Parsha that's spoken about whenever um, it's a question of how to deal with our enemies. This is the parsha that's discussed because this is the parsha where Jacob ends up meeting his brother Esau, who wants to kill him, and they both have um, armies, and they're literally ready to go to war, as we're going to see. So, as a matter of fact, this so there's an extensive discussion here about war. We also have the story in this week's portion of Dina, the famous um, Jacob's daughter Dina, who goes out into the the infamous city of Shechem of Nablus, still exists, always been a troublemaking city, and gets raped. And then the brother, her brothers, also go to war and kill out the whole city, as we see. So the many questions that come up in war, as as uh, questions of killing and uh, non-combatants and um, children and innocents, and how that fits in, we're going to talk about that. Yes. Rabbi, in um, in Reichlach, is there a mention of the fact that Esau is going to war? Yeah. If I remember, it says that he has an army, but it doesn't say that he's going to attack. Okay. Well, it says he's. He, uh, no, I think you, I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong, but uh, we'll see. It says, look at verse. Uh, maybe right. Let's see, verse seven. It says, the angels returned to Jacob, saying, "We came to your brother to Esau, and he's also coming toward you, and four hundred men are with him." Um, I believe he uses the word "war" at some later point. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's see. We'll see. We'll see if you're right. Um, but the point is, so this, this, there's many much of what can be learned in how a Jewish army is supposed to act in war time is um, gotten from this week's parish. So much so that actually, and I put it down here on the other side here, in 1977 when um, um, Menachem Begin was coming to meet Anwar Sadat for the first time in Camp David um, and where they shook hands with Jimmy Carter, Nobel Peace Prize winner, 79. I thought it was 77. Apologize, I put 77. Okay, um, I stand corrected, 1979. Um, so, the uh, Menachem Begin, who is somewhat a religious man, semi-religious, they say he was Shomer Shabbos, he actually came, prior to going to Camp David, he met with a few Jewish leaders amongst them, and he went to visit Tobavitcher Rebbe, um, and also Moshe Feinstein in New York, prior to going to Camp David. And both of them actually told him the same thing. They told him to, before he meets Sadat, to study this portion of Ayishla. Both of them gave the same message. Because the Talmud really? says, this is the portion that, that uh, you want to know how to deal with the enemy, this is it. So I figured it, since we're, it fits into context with what's going on in, in the world, unfortunately, so it's important for us to understand this. So, so we'll begin with the story of Esau and Jacob. So Esau and Yaakov. So, uh, remember, just to fill you in on last week's story, last week's parasha begins with the aspect of uh, Esau, um, Jacob stole, quote-unquote, stole his firstborn ship, and we discussed that, I think, two weeks ago in the class, 
um, whether he had a right, he sold it to him, and then he ended up stealing the blessings. Um, so Esau is not a happy camper. His brother's twin brother, and he's very upset, and, and literally he wants to kill him. Jacob leaves home, um, and there's, this is there's around the 14-year break here in between. Um, Jacob was running away, so to speak, on the road, and now he realizes it's time to come home again. He's married, he has a family, um, Jacob, and uh, he's, so he, he, he ends up, he's going to meet his brother. So what happens? So the pressure begins with, hence the name Vayishlach. Vayishlach means he's sent. So it begins with Vayishlach Yaakov, I'll read in the Hebrew and translate. Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim Lifanav. Jacob sent angels before him. Two angels here doesn't really mean angels, it means messengers. So the word Malachim is also used interchangeably, angels and messengers. Okay, so it doesn't, Ra- Rashi understands it to mean literally angels, but the simple interpretation is messengers. Okay, so... What? Mishla, right, that's what it means. Uh, shliach is a messenger. Here it's Malachim, which usually means angels, but, but not everyone agrees that here it means angels. Okay, so um, so it says he sent these messengers to his brother Esau to the land of Seir, the field of Edom. He charged them saying, um, Thus shall you say, This is what you shall say, To my master Esau. Okay, or servant Esau. Koamar, meaning, meaning he's calling him a master. So first thing is, you see, he t- talks to them with terms of endearment, even though they're, they're enemies, so to speak. Koamar, this is what your servant Jacob has said. In Lavan Garti, I've dwelled with um, Lavan, that was their uncle, Uncle Lavan, um, uh, Rebecca's, their mother, Rebecca's brother. So I lived with him, and I delayed till now. So this was also Jacob's father, he ended up marrying. Of course, um, uh, Rachel and Leah, Rachel and Leah, were daughters of Laban. Um, so he says, I lived with him. Interestingly, Rashi points out, why is he mentioning this fact? He's saying, I lived with Laban, and still in all, I still remained um, righteous, still remained observant, right? even though I was with him and his bad influence, so to speak, for so many years. Almost 20 years, he lived with Laban. He's saying, I'm still, I'm still Jacob, okay? And he goes on to say, I acquired all these belongings, donkeys, all these um, cattle and maidservants. Um, and I'm sending a message to tell my master, my lord, to find favor in your eyes. So this is step number one, as we're going to see. The first step prior to war, you see from here, is appeasement. Before war, you got to try to make peace and, and, and appease the enemy. That's step number one, um, as we see, as we're going to discuss. Um, and so much so, we'll see he soon he sent gifts. Jacob actually sent gifts to Asa. Okay? So, uh, so he sends a message to find favor in his eyes. Okay, that was his objective. His goal is, first thing, step is to find favor. By the way, later on, see this in the, in the next pages. And this one at the time. Pages are somewhat out of order, that's why I didn't staple them together. So if you look here on this page, uh, this side, you have, you're just missing a logo. Same thing, no, no, you're on the right side. Okay, so if you look at um, quote number two, which is from Deuteronomy, it says, when you come near a city to fight against it, is also in the Torah, then proclaim peace to it. Okay, so the first step, and this is the same thing Jacob was doing here, Jacob is just a nice story, which we learned about war. This is actually a commandment. The Torah says very explicitly, the first step is, before you go to war, you have to offer peace. OK? 
Okay, and this is this is the Jewish way. Okay, um, so it says when you come there, I say to fight against it, proclaim peace to it. Okay, and it shall be if it gives you an answer of peace and opens to you, then shall be that all the people that are found in it shall be tributaries to you. They shall serve you. So even if they agree to peace, they now become your servants, so to speak. Okay, and if it will not, not make peace to you, continues verse 12 in Deuteronomy, if it will make no peace with you, but you make war against it, then you shall besiege it. Okay, so step number two is is um, is war is if peace if they don't accept peace then you have the permission to make war as Jews we're not pacifists um, we believe in the concept of war uh, and, and we believe if you need to go to war you have to go to war but of course first step should always be trying to make peace okay um, so this is the same thing Jacob was doing here which is appeasement trying to make peace with Esau okay this is preparation for war and, and this is rule by the way the Rambam rules like this Shukhanar doesn't really discuss the laws of war, but in Maimonides, when he's discussing war, he also says the same thing. You need to first offer peace treaty. He actually quotes, Maimonides quotes, when Joshua came to the land of Canaan to offer um, to, to, uh, to wage war, and this, that was a God-commanded war, Maimonides says he still sent a letter to the inhabitants of Canaan offering first to, to make peace with them. Okay? Um, they didn't accept, and then that's when he went to war. That's, but that's actually, uh, without getting into the details, there, as we're going to see, there's different types of wars the Torah discusses. It's what's called Muhammad Mitzvah, which means an obligatory war. So, for example, the war to take over the land of Israel initially, Canaan, um, Joshua's war, was an obligatory war. God commanded them to fight that war. The war of Amalek was an obligatory war. And then we have what's called Muhammad Rishut. Muhammad is the Hebrew word for Mitzvah. Muhammad Rishut means a, a optional war. Okay? Meaning, it's, let's say it's a war that God did not command, but if, for example, to take uh, the country needs more water, okay, it needs more water sources or something of that sort, so that would be called an optional war. So that's called Muhammad Rishud. So the many uh, actually learn when the Torah in here in Deuteronomy is says that you have to first offer peace. That's only an optional war. In an obligatory war, if it's a, it's a Muhammad mitzvah, it's a command, it's a war that's commanded, you don't have to offer peace. God commanded you to fight the war, you got to go fight in either case. Question B today in Israel, so, so Maimonides clearly does not hold it. Maimonides' opinion clearly is saying, even in, in when Joshua came to Canaan, he offered them to make peace overtures first. So clearly he does not agree with that position. He's, Maimonides' position is, even in a commanded war, Muhammad mitzvah, you still need to make overtures of peace as opposed to Rashi, who doesn't agree with that. So there's two opinions. But the question would be, in, in a war such as the current war, Israel, all the wars that Israel has been facing, which is a defensive war, I believe everyone would agree that's called a commanded war. Meaning, even if God didn't officially command you to fight the war, but it's any time, um, it's very clear from the Torah, the concept of Habala Hargacha, Hashkem Largo, we discussed it here in the past. Someone who comes to kill you, you're obligated to kill him first. It's an obligation. It's not just a nice thing. You can't be a pacifist and say, no, I'll let myself... God forbid, I don't want to kill anyone, I'll let myself be killed. There's an ab obligation. If someone's going to kill you, you have to kill them first. As we'll see, the same holds true for war. So that would, in essence, be called a Muhammad Mitzvah in any sense. In defense of war, anytime um, someone's coming to kill you, you're obligated to kill them first. Um, so, so there's even a question we're saying if you have to make overtures for peace in that situation. Clearly, I think the Israeli government has fulfilled this mandate uh, many times over by making overtures of, of peace and it has not been accepted. So as far as this is concerned, step number one, there's no question. Um, again, the Israeli government, just to make it clear, they're not necessarily, don't follow the dictates of the Torah, but um, still in all, um, interestingly enough, they, they do 
many instances or Jewish army and they do like to use Jewish ethical principles not necessarily in a sense in the context of religious they're not an observant army per se but there are beautiful things about it as a matter of fact something that went unnoticed in an, and it was an article I don't know where maybe the New York Times uh, something that went unnoticed during this war is a few things one is just even the names of Israeli operations have very clearly biblical connotations. I don't know if you noticed, so the name of this operation, in translation, it totally lost its name. Um, it was called Operation Pillar of Defense. Something like that. Cloud of the uh, Pillar of Defense. I forgot, is that, was that the name? Something like that. No? Cloud Operation Cloud. Let me look it up to make sure. So one second, I'll tell you in a second. Let me just find the name. Um, F operation. Um, yeah, pillar of defense. I was right. What are you, you talking about? IDF operation, pillar of defense. Okay, so so that's what the English translation was. In Hebrew, in in heap in what Israel really called it was operation. Amud Anan, Amud Anan, which if you learn in the Bible, in Exodus, when the Jews are leaving the desert, so it says a cloud, there was a, cl a cloud in the form of a pillar that was in the back of them during the day, and at night there was a pillar of fire. And that cloud, it says, would, would catch all the, when the Egyptian army was chasing them, the cloud would catch all the arrows that were being shot at the, at the Jews. So the, this pillar, this Amud Anan, pillar of a cloud, would actually defend the Jews. It was in the back of the nation. You're traveling through the desert for 40 years. Anytime anyone would shoot at them, this pillar would catch the arrows. Okay, so this Iron is what... Dome. Once I will get to the Iron Dome in a second. So Iron Dome is, was, the, was the missile defense system. It's called the Iron Dome. We'll right, talk about I'll tell you in a second. So the pillar, so Amud Anan, these words Amud Anan from the Torah, it means, it means we're referring to the that pillar which was a beautiful concept, meaning the, their point of the Israeli army, whatever the religious connotations are, it's a defensive war. Here we're just here to protect our citizens from missiles, which was what the pillar, the cloud pillar was doing in the desert. Sometimes people totally missed it. I mean, even Jews, like Operation Pillar of Defense, even getting tweets on their phone. No one knew what it meant. It was a beautiful concept. Actually, someone told me the same thing about the Iron Dome, which was the missile defenses that Israel employed. It was also a similar... Um, the word in Hebrew is kipat barzal. Kipat, so it's the word for dome in, in, in Hebrew is a kipat. It's the same thing, we're saying it's sort of the yarmulke is protecting, our iron yarmulke is protecting us. So it's, everything has, has biblical kind of, uh, kipat is not biblical, but kipat is, you know, so, so, you know, we don't even, even as Jews, like I didn't realize when uh, Operation Pillar of Defense, I didn't put it together until I was reading a Hebrew website and I so it's a fascinating thing. As, as, as much as we want to say the Israeli government is not technically a religious government, but they clearly, everything is, and I think they understand. At the end of the day, everything is uh, related to, to the Bible and related to God, which is a fascinating thing. Um, and like I was saying, even Menachem Begin, when he came to meet, um, he came to meet Anwar Sadat, and he wasn't, I wouldn't say he was frequently religious, he understood that prior to making such a treaty, he went to meet Jewish leaders. There's nothing political about it because no one's voting. These were American Jewish leaders, um, religious leaders, not, not talking about American political leaders. 
So he didn't go to meet the, you know, the heads of the ADL or the, you know, or Abraham Faxman, uh, what's his organization? ADL. ADL. That is ADL. And he went, he went to the religious leaders because he understood, you know, when we're just making such major decisions for the, for the country, um, we need to have, uh, you know, a Torah, Torah perspective on this. Okay? So, um, so again, so getting back to the parashas, just fascinating to keep, to keep that in mind. Whenever you see an operational name in Israel, there's always some connotation. When I, I uh, believe it or not, I served in the Israeli army for all of two weeks um, in my life. When I was there, it was during the first intifada when I was in the Shiva. So I had a program for, for foreigners where they were desperate, they needed just manpower. People like to make sandwiches on the basis, so they gave you, did basic training for, for 14 days. So, uh, so when they, one of the things they teach you, so everything, first of all, by the way, the army, you do have Shabbat, there's no, there's no training, nothing's done on Shabbat. It's like a day off, even in the army, obviously. If it's something to go off nefesh, it's to save a life. Of course you do it. But no training, nothing's done. Um, everyone can wear, you don't have to wear a uniform on Shabbat on the base. Um, and one of the fascinating things I found is, so in the M16, they teach you how to take apart an M16 and put it together, blindfolded. One of the things I learned, I don't know if I could do it today. Wow. So, the, okay. so the, uh, there's a pin in the M16 that without this, it's a little, little pin. It's like literally like a half inch big. And if you lose that pin, the gun's useless. If you take it apart and you lose that pin, it's done. And the name of the pin is called Pin Shabbat. Why? Because if you lose that pin, they take away your free Shabbos. Uh, you, you can't go home for Shabbos. It's like everyone in the army gets one free Shabbos a month, you go home. So if you lose that pin, it's called Pin Shabbat, you lose your Shabbat. Okay. So even that, even <laughs> little things, <laughs> even little things have, uh, everything has a biblical uh, connection. So it's, a, it's an unbelievable army. You know, you know, by the way, you know how to smoke in public on an army base. On Shabbat in Israel. That's new. Yeah. Some listen, people do it, but in saying officially, the rules you know how to smoke public on Shabbat. So that's something they make Kiddush. Every army base has a shul with the Sefer Torah. What's the reasoning for that? Because you're not allowed to smoke. You can't smoke on Shabbat. You're not supposed to. Well, I don't smoke, so I don't even know that. Fire, not allowed to fire. Oh, you're not allowed to smoke on Shabbat. Just fire. Right. Lighting it, yeah. oh, that's right. right, of course, of course. Yeah. But if somebody lights it for you, then you can do it. You can't ask for that. That's why there's early army. That's why Yeah, Jews, Jews. I remember in Yeshiva when, you know, guys, instead in Europe, when people they couldn't smoke on Shabbat, so they do is in Yeshiva, they would, before Shabbat, they'd like light up, chain smoke cigarettes, breathe it into a, into a jar, and close the jar. Before Shabbat, full of smoke. And then in Shabbat, they'd open the jar. Oh, you have to breathe. <laughs> to get the wonderful benefit of all the tar okay. nicotine. So uh, anyway, okay, getting back to, to to war. So the point is, so Jacob, we're in the middle of Jacob here. So Jacob again comes across. He, he sends the first thing he sends, tries to appease uh, his brother Esau, and he goes on to say, "Veshuah Malachim El Yaakov." So what happens? They return to him saying, verse seven on the sheet, the angels return to Jacob saying, "We came to your brother to Esau, and he is also coming toward you. Four hundred men are with him." This is what. Lydia pointed out these four doesn't mention they're coming to fight a war. Um, there are four hundred men with obviously the connotation is they're coming to fight um, they're coming to fight, but Lydia's saying pointing out it doesn't say the word war here. And we'll see as we go on if she's correct. It doesn't mention that. So so far she doesn't mention it. In verse number eight, Jacob became very frightened and was distressed. Okay, it's a very important verse. So he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the cattle and the camels into two camps. Okay? 
So now, interestingly enough, I think you have it here on your last sheet. Yes, you turn over this sheet here. This sheet, turn to the back. Yeah, okay. And I apologize, things are out of order because there's so much information and not, not enough time to put it in order. So if you look at C, the last quote on the sheet here, says, Rashi explains on this verse, it says that Jacob became very frightened and it distressed him. Okay, so Rashi explains, interprets the verse, what is it, why, what was he, fr- what's these two languages? He became frightened and distressed. What's the two points here? Usually we believe Torah doesn't mince words. There's two words here, frightened and distressed. In Hebrew, the words Vayira, Vayira Yakumot, Vayetzerlo. Okay, so what's this frightened and distressed? So Rashi explains, he became frightened, lest he be killed. He was scared that he would be killed. And Rashi continues, and it distressed him. What's those words mean? Worried to kill others. Meaning he, so he was frightened about himself, about his own life, but he was distressed that he might have to kill someone else. Okay, so the obvious question is here, why, what's he distressed? Listen, again, we just said, if you have to kill someone, if someone coming to kill you, you have every right to kill them. Okay, but still we see this concept, Jacob was still distressed. Um, even though he had every right to kill Esau, assuming Esau was coming to fight him, he had every right to kill him, but he still was distressed about it, distressed about killing someone else. This is a beautiful concept, and as we see uh, today also in, in the Israeli army, keeps this precept very much so, which is even though we have every right to fight, we're still, every time a civilian is killed, every time someone, or even, and even the enemy, as Golda Meir said, you know the quote? Uh, there was one, which is a different one, about us killing. Uh, yeah, maybe that's uh, there's a there's a famous quote from. I don't remember it either, but I should have put it, looked it up. Something about you know us killing, meaning for an Israeli soldier to kill someone is also a great is it's distressing, even the enemy, um, because we don't want to kill. We we have no interest in killing. Sure, not surely not civilians, and surely not we don't go dance in the streets when we kill the enemy. Right, even even though they deserve to die, mm-hmm. right? The guy's killed by a missile. This guy who had blood on his hands of hundreds of people. We don't go jumping for joy. So killing someone you know, is distressful, even if you have every right to do it. It's one of the things you see here from Jacob. Fascinating um, concept. So that it, that again, we see that the Jewish army is never happy um, to kill, even when necessary. Um, as you see here from Jacob. So going back to continuing the verses. Um, so verse 9 it says if, and he said Yaakov said so the next step we see here that Jacob is doing in verse 8 and 9 is he was frightened and what is he doing he has a military strategy here. he splits the camps into two he was traveling with all his his four wives um, 12 kids okay much cattle that he got um, his camels, cattle, his jewelry, a lot of assets that he'd acquired over these 20 years in his father-in-law's house. Okay, and what does he do? So here he divides the people. And he says, he explains the strategy, because if Esau comes to one camp to strike it down, the remaining camp will escape. So you have to have a military strategy. So the second thing is after he tries to appease him, but he still has to be prepared for war. So the first step is appeasement. He says, we're going to see, he sent him gifts. Okay, and he tries to appease him. But that doesn't mean, you know, you just should have appeasement you know, and, and no military strategy. Yeah, he right away implements a military strategy and, and splits the two camps this way. If one camp is attacked, still have the enemy hasn't won yet. There's two, you have the other camp that will survive. Okay, so you have a military strategy. That's step number two. Step number three, now if you notice, till now there's no mention of God in all this. He's not praying. You think, listen, Jacob is a forefather. Whip out a sitter, start chuckling. 
I'd start praying, nothing. Now, the third step is Yomer Yaakov in, in verse number 10, and Jacob says, Oh God, my father of Abraham, he starts speaking to God. Okay, prayer is step number three. So it's very important to know. Okay, when it comes to war, you know, you can't just say, Well, I'm going to stay in the shul, I'm going to pray all day. That, that doesn't work. <laughs> prayer is a good thing, but you need to have, you need to have a military strategy. Yes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. You need to have a military strategy. So, so step number three is prayer. After you got your military, you got your uh, missiles, and you got everything in order, then you can, so then you can talk to God. Okay. Step number, number verse number ten. And Jacob said, "O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Lord, who said to me, Return to your land, to your birthplace, and I will do good for you." I've become small from your kindness. This is Jacob talking to God. And this is prayer. He says, I've, because all the good you've done for me and I acquired so much cattle, I'm a rich man now. Right? As we know, he started with nothing before he, he went to, when he went to Laban's house. All his money was stolen by Jacob, by Esau's son. So he says, you have rendered your servant with, with my staff across this Jordan. All I did, I had one stick when I crossed the Jordan and now I've become two camps. I have so much now, so many assets, that now I'm two camps. So now he asks his prayer from God in verse 12. Deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. I'm afraid of him, lest he, become, lest he come and strike me and strike a mother with children. Okay? And you said, he speaks to God, I'll show you do good with you, make you seed as numerous as the sand. So, so again, the third step, he's praying to God here, what God should do for him. And continues on side two. Um, so he's praying to God um, what... Um, that God should help. So again, this is a very important concept. In Judaism, we discuss this many times in business ethics, but it's applicable obviously to war too, that as much as we believe everything comes from God and God makes the decisions, whether it be in our business, in our income, or whether it be in, in war, who's going to win a war? But again, you have to go through the motions, of course, and do what you got to do within the natural order of the world. So again, in business, you have to go to where you have to get a job. You can't say, I have faith in God, and, and God will provide. Right in in um, in uh, nonprofit, you can rely on God a little more, maybe. <laughs> Lydia, you know that, right? In nonprofits, we rely on God a little more than than regular than in the prof for profit world. But uh, true, try. I mean, you have no choice. I actually rely on friends. Okay. Okay. Um, but peace, Right, peace. Exactly. Three. Uh, it's war. It's war out there. So the, the point is, but, uh, but you, we need to do the same thing in war. Of course, we believe the outcome of a war at the end of the day with all our missiles, and with our Iron Dome, with everything. The only way we're protected is God. It's God who's going to, we have to believe it's coming from God. But you need, we need to have a strategy. We need to go to war. And we can't, you know, just let ourselves be, be, you know, be killed. Did you hear the Rabbi Bnei said? No missiles will fall on Bnei Brak. Okay, then he was right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> hey, you only said Bnebrak, you didn't say the rest of the country. Okay, so, so, uh, so, this, so again, and I put it down, you see at the bottom here, um, it says, and, and again, the rest of the verses, I want to move on, the rest of the verses here discuss how the gifts he then sent, again, he sent gifts to Esav. Um Of course, Esav doesn't doesn't listen to him, and they end up um, fighting. Um, at least with his angel, the famous story, uh, Jacob has a fight with the archangel, 
we're not going to go into that. But he sends him all these gifts. And so if you see down at the bottom of the page, slide two, it says, so three, again, just to reiterate, three things Jacob did to prepare for confrontation. One is he sent a lavish tribute to appease Esau. Number two is pray, um, prayer. I put it, sorry, it's a mistake. It's really, it should be number three. I put it as number two. As B, it should be C. And strategy for battle. Okay, those are the three things. Yes. There was strategy for battle, and then there's the fight with the angels. Yes. No yes, no physical battle between. But he did. Uh, Jacob did fight his uh, his angel, Esau's angel. So okay. Hello, hello, welcome. Okay. So, so that's the story of Jacob. Oh. Right. That's the story of Jacob and Esau, and how that fits in with um, current strategy within the Israeli army. This is what you just missed. This is what we're still discussing. And we have one more. Now. So now we're going to move on to the story of the rape of Dina, which is also Mr. Spark. Also very relevant to the question now becomes, now we decided clearly we, as Jews we're not pacifists. We believe in the concept of war. Yes, that's another sheet. Pass. Thank you. Okay. Um, here, one more. No, don't give it back. This is new. Oh. This is for you. I thought it was the same. No, nothing's the same. Looks the same. Same oh, Hebrew. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so now. Dina? Yeah. <coughs> it's a common name no, given. I'm just wondering. Well, uh, I think she was she was a great woman, right. but she just. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think I've never heard of an issue. Um. It doesn't say in, in this story we don't blame the victim. She's clearly not, uh, it's not her fault for what happened. Um, okay, so so now this is in the same parsha. Interestingly enough, Jacob is uh, a lot of a lot of tsaras. So so now he's finally settling down. He gets past this thing with his brother Esau, and now his daughter. Um, I don't know. I don't remember the age. I don't know. The Torah clearly doesn't give an age. I don't know how old she was at the time. I'm sure the commentators discuss it. I don't remember. But she goes out into the infamous city of Shechem. And this, from this story, we're going to um, try to understand the question that has come up in this last war, comes up in every war, um, but specifically, of course, in, in what happens, what is the Jewish perspective, what's the Torah perspective on killing um, civilians? And also, of course, um, well, we'll see, and also on, on, uh, on uh, collateral damage, so to speak. Um, what happens if you have a case, as we have here, where you have the enemy is, is cowardly putting their shooting missiles from schools, from hospitals, from masks, which is what they, what they were doing. I mean, I don't know if you saw, there was video, even on CNN, believe it or not, that showed one of their, they put the, they put the missiles underground, the missile launchers, it has like an automatic, the, uh, like a top, it's underground, camouflage, and then lifts up, and the missiles shoot out in little alleyways between literally between houses, civilian in residential neighborhoods in Gaza. It's unbelievable how this is what we're dealing with. Ever, I mean, believe that, that normal human beings could do such a thing. They're literally putting their children <coughs> in harm's way. I mean, doing it to yeah. schools from, from masks, from media centers. That there was this famous thing. This media center was hit twice. Israel showed pictures of on the roof of that media center. That's where they were shooting missiles from. So they did it specifically in the foreign media center, so this way when Israel bombs it, they can claim, oh, they're shooting at the media, they're killing the media. Unbelievable. And, and if you notice, 
um, when they showed the pictures, this is what they showed on some of these websites, Israel only shot off, only the top floor was hit. They specifically aimed it in order not to harm anyone in the building. Minor injuries to media people, but only the roof of the building was knocked off. Which is just, uh, I mean, it's just amazing how careful they are um, when, when, uh, when yeah, shooting. I have, in I have a huge issue with it, considering yes. the, the industry that I'm in. Just carpet bomb. If, if that's precisely what, if, if, if people want to destroy us, we need to win the war, not just to scratch, you know, right? And, we, we have not, and Israel is not. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yes. Oh, it's a problem. They're so anymore. careful. There's a media wars, and you know what? We have not and taught that, that biblical lesson. Mm-hmm. Be prepared for a war. Seek peace, be prepared for the war. And You're saying which part? The strategy win. part or the appeasement? No, I, I, we try appeasement all, all the way, but when we're finally forced to war, we don't go all the way. Fight as if it's the last mm-hmm. day in your life. Not yeah. apologetically. Yeah, no, we're so scared of killing civilians and, and uh, the world opinion. Right. That's the problem. That's the problem. 100%. The major problem. And yet the news paints a picture of us just bombing. Right. Right. No matter what, we do exactly. Win. You don't win. Yeah, you don't win either. That's all that it was. Right. Mm-hmm. Might as well get the job then. True. So let's see. So what's the Torah's view? So this is the famous story of the rape of Dina. So we're on page three. There's a little three on top of the page. Looks the same as the other page. There's a little three there on the right side. So, so in the same parasha, parasha Yishlach, the Torah goes on to say, so quickly, we don't have that much time, so read what, um, read the verses in English. It says, Dina, the daughter of Leah, she had born to Jacob, went out to look about amongst the daughters of the land. So she wanted, listen, social, she wanted to have a social life, she went to befriend some of the, the daughters of Canaan um, to meet them after they moved to this to city. And by the way, Shechem is notorious. It's an infamous city. If you notice throughout the Bible, Shechem, there's always problems with Shechem. Even up to this very day, Shechem is Nablus, it's current day Nablus. Um, so this is the first story in Shechem um, where we have problems. Then you have, of course, Joseph was sold in Shechem by his brothers. That's where it took place in the same city. And um, throughout history, Shechem has never been in Nablus. It's not a good city. So if you ever go to Israel, stay away from, from Nablus. It's not a good place. From yeah. Thank you for the warning. I will be there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. stay away. It's actually under PA control, man. But that's more, all the more reason to stay away. So it says like this. It says so. What happens? She goes out and Shechem, the son of Hamar, um, Shechem, who was the basically Hamar was the governor of the, of the city. The Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her and he took her, lay with her, and violated her. So he rapes her, and then it says he loved her so much. He's so cleaved to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. Loved the girl, spoke to the girl's heart. Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, <coughs> verse 4, Take this girl for me as a wife. So he wanted to marry her. Um, seems like in those days, by the way, it was not uncommon. Um, after a rape, the, the purpose was since this, uh, quote unquote, the, the woman was damaged goods, so she would have a problem getting married afterwards. So the, it was sort of a penalty that the guy who raped her, it's not his prerogative, it's her prerogative, but she would have the choice to marry him. This way he would have to take care of her. Um, because otherwise there might have been an issue in those cultures that she wouldn't be able to get married. Yeah. So this concept seems to have been existed in history. Um, now, again, it's, of course it's her choice. So he wants to marry her. So he comes to Jacob's sons. So Jacob had heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with his livestock in the, in the field. Jacob kept silent until they came home. Thereupon Jacob's sons answered Shem and his father, Hamar with cunning. So they tricked him. Famous, famous trick. Great trick, don't try this at home. And they spoke, um, because after all, he defiled their sister Dina. Okay, so the Torah says it was, it was cunning, but in the essence, it was, it was, they had a right to do it because they defiled, um, they, they had raped their, their sister. Okay, 
So it goes on to say, what happens? What was the trick? It says, they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to a man who has a foreskin, for this is a disgrace to us. So meaning these, as we know, Jew, Jews at that time, this was after the commandment of circumcision. The Canaanites were not circumcised. It says, listen, we love you dearly. We'd love for you to marry our sister, but you guys are not circumcised. We can't take you into our family. So, but with this, however, we'll consent to you. If you'll be like us, every male will be circumcised. So if you circumcise all your males, then we will give you our daughters, we'll take your daughters for ourselves, we'll dwell with you and become one people. Every life will be great. We can uh, all date together, socialize. But if you do not listen to us to be uncircumcised, we'll take our daughter and go. So the words, please, Chamar and Shechem. So the governor and his son were happy. So it says they, they hold a town meeting. Everyone in the city got together. Um, verse 24, all those coming out of the gate of the city listened to Hamar, the son Shechem, and every male, all who went out to the gate of the city became circumcised. So the whole city was circumcised. And then if you turn, turn over the page, page 4. Now it came to pass on the third day. By the way, this is something I have confirmed with uh, surgeons medically. This is a fascinating concept. That it's good to notice. On the third day after any surgery, the patient is always the weakest. I don't know how they explain it medically, but studies haven't been done. This is a medical fact. You can do your research on this. Um, the third day after surgery, patients are always the weakest. Okay, so this, so that's what the Torah is mentioning here. Now, it came to pass on the third day after the circumcision, when they were in pain, that Jacob's two sons, Simon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword. They came upon the city with confidence. They slew every male. So they come in on the third day after the circumcision and kill out the whole city. Every male in the city was killed that day. Okay? And Hamar and the son Shem, they slew at the edge of the sword, took Dina out of Shem's house and left. They took their sister and uh, they went home. So you don't mess with the Jewish girl. It was the mess. Okay? Okay? Um, so uh, the, the verse continues, which is finished the story, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and plundered the city that defiled their sister. Flocks and their cattle and their donkeys, whatever they was in the city, whatever was in the field they took. So they took all the booty after killing all the males. All their wealth and all their infants, their wives, they captured and plundered, and all that was in the house. Okay, so they took all the, everything that was there. And then it continues, they came home to Jacob. Thereupon Jacob said to Simon, Simon and Levi, those are the two sons who, who perpetrated this act, you have troubled me to discredit me among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and among the Prezites. I am few in number and they will gather against me and I am and I, I and my household will be destroyed. So you only have the leftists complaining afterwards, right? So Jacob here, in this case, he was from the left wing. He was said he was upset at his sons for doing this, and they said, "Shall?" And they answered to him. The two sons said, "Shall the famous line, Hakizona Yas Verse thirty-one. Shall he make our sister like a harlot? Okay, meaning they defiled her. They deserve what they got. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the question is, obvious question is. What right did Shimon and Levi have to kill all the male inhabitants? Um, it was only Shem and his father who had committed the atrocity. Okay, so that's question number one. Yes. Actually, not a question, but pondering. Yes. And until the story, I had tremendous respect for Jacob, and at this point, he lost. Ah, your respect. colors are coming through. Lydia, yeah, impressed. Right wing colors. Rabbi, listen to this. <laughs> he, he hears about the defilement of his daughter, and what does the Torah tell us? He was silent. He gave no leadership advice to his sons. He did not go and present his case. He stayed silent. And then when his boys, in other words, giving absolute you know, agreement, implicit agreement to this, uh, which it, it, knowing this, what, what he let happen, 
No, so clearly he was saying two things. He was very left. Yaakov was he was distressed about killing others, and he also here you see you're right. He he wasn't happy with showed, what he did. But he showed no parental leadership in this case. That could be and true. When the sons do whatever they have, then he's upset with them. Right. You're saying he should have stated to them what. So obviously he didn't realize they were going to do this. That's the assumption. All he did. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's a good. It's a, it's a good question. I'm not sure what he knew, where he didn't, but but it's a good point. It's a valid point. Um, whether whether he the question obviously this is the obvious question here. First of all, as I put here, I think it's on the other side of paper. Back to this paper. Sorry. Okay. Back to the other side too of this of this sheet. Did he? Did Jacob? No, you know, he knew about the rape. That's right. for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. You knew about the rape. The question is, did you know what they were? Did you know what they were going to do? And she's pointing out, he's pointing out. The Torah, he doesn't seem to give any guidance prior. Now, after they did it, he's all upset. So right. when but he's you know, wanting to give guidance, you could look at it this way. Maybe he thought he'd been such a good father up till then. He just took it for granted that that would do be the right thing. His sons would never do. Right, but the, we do know, first of all, Shimon and Levi were hotheads. We know they're, they're, he understood. If you know your kids, probably if you're yeah. a good parent, you know yeah. Yeah, which kids, what their personalities yeah, are, and true. True. you should uh, know. So it's a Lydia has a valid, valid point. It is addressed in the commentaries. Don't remember what, what they say. Okay. So now, so again, the question is on top here. How would you respond? Side B, where on that sheet? On the logo, yes, right there. With the logo on it. On the back of that paper. So how would you respond? What question number one is? What right did Shimon and Levi have to kill all the male inhabitants? It was only meaning. Look, let's look at it from the perspective. Without getting to Yaakov, who's right? The question is just from their perspective. One person committed a rape here. Just this 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 prince Shem. He committed the rape. What what gives them a right to kill every male in the city? Killed out the whole city. Okay, so even if you said they were right for killing him, he committed the atrocity. So we have a right to kill him. What gives him a right to kill out the whole city? That's question number one. Question is also, which is the general question, which we want to answer here, is who, how do you define a combatant um, in wartime? Especially this question came up when you have uh, you know, people who are dancing in the streets when, when there's a bomb goes off and missile hits Israel. Are they enemy? Are they clearly the enemy? Are they considered combatants? How do you, who do you consider combatants when you have civilians, civilians shooting missiles? And how does that work? And, and the other question is collateral damage and the concept of innocent civilians. Okay, so, so this, the question of Shimon O'Levy, so I think from this story we can maybe get somewhat, I don't want to say a clear picture, but some guidance here as to how to answer this question. Um, so my mind of this question is uh, it's an obvious question, right? What's going on here? What's the argument between Jacob and the brothers? Um, obviously there's clearly, you know, just right wing, left wing. What's, what exactly are the two opinions? Um, and, and what right did they have to kill these, the rest of the city, seemingly innocent civilians? So Maimonides asked this question, um, and he says a fascinating thing. That's the next quote here, B on the sheet. Um, this is Maimonides in the Law of Wars. Um, so he discusses, he mentions this concept that one of the, and we discussed this here in the past, that there's an obligation, um, even for non-Jews, the universal law, um, seven universal laws, the seven known as the seven Noahide laws, for all non-Jews, which God commands for the world, those are known, again the Noahide laws, um, which um, amongst them is, first of all, is the law of clearly kidnapping is pro prohibited, um, rape 
in the sense of if it's a single girl is questionable, it's amongst those laws, but rape is, uh, is clearly, it's no worse, it's kidnapping at the, at the least, right, you're holding someone against their will, at the least it's kidnapping and stealing, which is again two of the seven Ohad laws, is stealing and kidnapping. Um, besides that, there's another law, one of the seven Ohad laws is justice, that means society is obligated to have a justice system, you can't have society where, where there's just uh, anarchy, people do whatever they want. So there's an obligation to bring people to law. That's the universal law. It's one of the seven Ohio laws. So says my man, he's on this, when he's discussing the seven Ohio laws, he just mentions in passing, he says, how must the Gentiles fulfill the commandment to establish laws in courts? They are obligated to set up judges and magistrates in every major city to render judgment concerning these six mitzvot, to admonish the people regarding their observance. Okay? So he says that's part of the, that's one of the seven Ohio laws, to set up a justice system. Non-Gentiles have an obligation wherever they live, whatever country, to set up a just justice system, so to speak. He says a gentile who transgresses these seven commandments shall be executed by decapitation. Okay, meaning is that that's part of the seven Ohio laws. Says Maimonides, for this reason, all the inhabitants of Shechem were obligated to die. He says this is how he's explaining why the inhabitants who didn't commit the atrocity, they didn't rape Tina. It's only one person who committed the rape. But he says since they did not put Shechem on trial, they didn't bring him to justice, therefore they're all guilty of violation of one of the seven Ohio laws, of bringing them to justice, and therefore they're all it's capital punishment. Any violation of the seven Ohio laws is capital punishment, said Maimonides, and, and he says they observed and were aware of his deeds, they all saw what happened, and they didn't do anything about it, and they didn't judge him, therefore they're all violation of, uh, of capital crime, and they all deserve to die. This is how he rationalizes why Shimon and Levi had a right to kill, uh, to kill the whole city. Look at me like I'm crazy. Well, no, I, I mean, we should have just taken it in. We should have killed all the Germans. Huh? We should have killed all the Germans and all the Spanish. to this, yes. You're right. Okay. What do you how many agree with this? How many people? Died that day? I don't think it says. It just says all the males. It gives, it gives a number. But it was a, it was a whole large city. Forever, she never she could have been happy with Shem because he loved her and have a family and have you know all of the alive. alive, but they destroyed her life as well. Well, listen, she ended up getting married afterwards. Yeah. Um, she she did marry, I believe. Yeah, she she had children. Actually, there, there was supposedly there's a child from this rape. She did she became pregnant. Medrash talks about she did have a baby. No, it's no, Medrash. Yeah. yeah. Now, I miss, I realized a key point that I thought I pasted on here is not here. Okay, so that's my man and his answer. Missing. Uh, how come? Yes. Sodom and Gomorrah, there was a conversation about saving the city. So so we'll see. So so we'll see. That's us. Oh, so you be saying why aren't they judged? That's a, that's a very good question. So really, on this, and this is what I'm missing. So I'll, I have to tell it to you outside. I thought I, I thought I pasted it on. Obviously, my cut and paste didn't work well. So I pasted it somewhere else. Um, not here. Sorry. The morale of Prague quotes this Maimonides, and he says on the on the Chumash, and he says. 
It's ridiculous. My mommy's answer is ridiculous. He says, because they, there's no way, and this will answer your question of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a valid, good question, <coughs> they, the inhabitants of the city couldn't have put their governor on trial, this, the prince. He says, they would have been killed. It's like, you know, uh, you know I'm going to put, uh, you know, uh, what's the guy named? Ed, <laughs> maybe, yes. And put uh, the, the leader of North Korea on trial, <laughs> right? The inhabitants should put him. Okay, the inhabitants of, uh, of you know, the, I'm going to put the, what's his name, Kim, Kim Young Moo, whatever his name is, uh, the president of North Korea, right? On trial. I'm going to put Gaddafi on trial, right? Obviously, it's not going to work. You can't, you can't say, well, let's kill all the Libyans because they didn't put their leader on trial. They obviously their lives in danger if they would put their leader on trial. Are so you reselling J.E. bumper stickers that say kill them all and God sort them out? <laughs> 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 okay, so, so the point is, right, so there's no way they could have, they can't be held liable for the fact they didn't put them on justice. They, they couldn't. It's not, they, you can't hold the whole city liable. They put their leader on justice, you know, bring him to justice. He says they, they, they there's no way they could have done that. So how could my mommy say that? So Morale says something else, basically. And I, shame, I, I translated and I spent my morning translating and I didn't print it out, didn't, I pasted it on here. Um, so, but basically what he says is like this. He says, in uh, 30 words or less, he says that once he's members of a nation, he's going on a nation, he says, commit an atrocity against the Jewish people. He, and he says the tribes here, this was already at this point, were considered, they had 12 tribes, were considered the Jewish nation. Um, he says at that point, once an atrocity is committed, he says, that whole nation now, we can go to war against that nation. There's no such thing, in, in other words, what he's saying, there's no such thing as, as non-combatants. He says they're all in violation. If the atrocity was committed, and they stood by, and they didn't do anything, even if they couldn't, meaning we now, it's now war. And the wartime, he says, of course, there's no such thing. You can kill, you have to do what you have, what you have to do in war. This is what Maral says. Therefore, he says, this is their, Shimon and Levi, this was their obligation, he says, they an atrocity was committed against the Jewish nation, so to speak, the 12 tribes. They raped their, his sister, their sister. Okay? He says they had every right to go in and kill the whole city at that point. This was an act of war. Once an act of war was declared, and he says rape is an act of war, they have every right to go in and now kill. There's no such thing as non-combatants. He says they're all considered combatants. Okay? Does that make you happy, Lydia? No. Well, you, maybe you're related to the morale problem. If, if there is a rabbinic uh, explanation that I agree with, then I'm happy. Okay, maybe you, you're related to the morale problem. <laughs> Maybe you're related to the morale of Prague. <laughs> Have you ever been to Prague? Exactly. Have you been to Prague? I've never been to Prague. So you can go to his, uh, his grave. There's a statue of him actually in downtown Prague. They have a statue of the morale. Really? Yeah, still today. But the point is, this, so uh, um, the only reason I once went, I, got, I had to, once had a ticket on mileage to Israel. I went, I went on check air. <laughs> had to take like you know, one of these uh, mileage went through six countries, and I was in Prague for the day, so, so I went. So, uh, check here, and I lost my suitcase, lost all my luggage. Um, nice. But uh, in any case, so so the point being is, um, oh, so this is a, that's the morale's answer. He says that there's no such thing as, once an act of war and atrocity was committed by this country against the Jewish people, he says, they're all not, they're all, there's no such thing as, as civilians at this point. Of course, and what's important to note is my man says very clearly, Torah says that even when you besiege a city, that's on the other side, going back to the other side, just turn back, because we're almost out of time. So my man says very clearly, um, 
Look at the last quote on the page. When you lay number five, it says, uh, "When you lay siege yeah. upon a city, you must leave one direction available for the non-combatants to flee the city." Okay, so you do have an obligation. If someone doesn't want to fight, they you you have to give them an exit strategy. And if someone says, "Listen, we don't want to be involved in this fight," so you have to. It says, "When you besiege a city, you have to give them an exit," which which technically anyone can leave Gaza through Egypt. Um, you can't come into Israel, maybe, but there is. A, there is a way if they need to leave, they can, they can leave. So the point is, once you give them this opportunity to leave, he says, says morale, there's, there's uh, and you gave again, of course, there were overtures of peace, as we discussed in the beginning, and everyone, there's no such thing as a combat, and everyone technically is, is, is has a right, you have a right to kill everyone. Yeah. How, I know we will discuss it, but there is a difference between Noahide laws and then our uh, seeking uh, mishpat, the justice, and what the Jews the idea of the Jews of, uh, of the justice, which is very different from us. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But, but part of them, but that's, that's my mind, part of their, they have an obligation to, to do justice also. So if you're living in a society where, again, obviously, again, you might want to make the argument, like the morale's making, just like here, that people living in Gaza can't really bring their leaders, you know, even though if they understand there's an injustice being perpetrated by, their, by, the, by Hamas, I don't think there's much they can do about it, as far as civilians, you know, it's, they do, they'll get their body dragged by motorcycles in the, you know, in the street. So, so I don't think, so, so Maimonides would not necessarily be applicable, applicable to the case in Gaza, but the morale would be applicable. He's saying an atrocity is committed, and then the whole society becomes, is at war now. And once the whole society is at war, an atrocity was committed, and everyone's, everyone is free game, so to speak. That's what, that's what morale is saying. Again, it's, it's debated, just morale, one can argue. Not a, it's not in the Torah. This is his interpretation of the story of Shimon and Levi. Okay, so, so, and I just want to point out, which I didn't put here on the sheet, there's another concept, like we're saying, of course, of Rodef. That means if someone's shooting missiles at you, then, of course, you have the old the principle we discussed many times, which is Rodef. That literally, they're a pursuer. Um, that means they're chasing you. So if someone's shooting to kill you, of course, you're allowed to shoot back. Now, it gets to the question of what happens to what's called the... A, non-intentional pursuer. So if they're shooting from a schoolyard, so this really, in a certain sense, becomes the question of, right, you have a plane, uh, which I might have, I'm sure we discussed this here in the past, um, after 9-11, which is you have a plane heading into the Pentagon. So can I shoot down that plane to save the lives of people in the Pentagon? There are innocent civilians on that plane. Right, so if I shoot the plane then, if I don't shoot the plane then, it's going to crash the Pentagon, kill hundreds of, of important people in the Pentagon. Okay? If I do shoot the plane, then I'm killing innocent civilians. You're right. It's a din rodef. There's a pursuer here. The plane is now being used as a weapon. How do we view those innocent people on the plane? Do we have a right to kill them or not? So most opinions say it's called what's known as the non-intentional pursuer or innocent pursuer. So, so these, those people on the plane, they're pursuing you because right now they're part of this weapon, this airplane that's going to crash into the building. But they're innocent. They're non-intentional. Yeah. They don't need to harm you. So most, many, including Ricky Vega, many say that even an, in a non-intentional pursuer is considered a pursuer and you have a right to kill them. So if, if people are in, var, in that spot where the missile is being shot, there's a school there, technically they might fit into that category. Um, the proof, actually, interestingly enough, the proof to that is, is abortion. That we kill, according to Maimonides at least, we kill, uh, the, the reason why you're allowed to kill, uh, to abort a fetus, is according to my mind, is because if it's endangering the life of the mother, because the fetus is a rodef. Fetus is pursuing the mother. Okay? Therefore, you have every right to kill the fetus. Now, the fetus intends no harm to the mother. Right? The fetus has no intention to harm the mother. The fetus is living, just going about its life. Somehow, there's some medical issue 
let's say it's causing the mother to hemorrhage or whatever the case is, it's causing some blood disease, because the fetus is in the mother, it's unintentionally harming the mother. But still we see, Mamani says, it's considered a road if you're allowed to kill the fetus. So that's one of the proofs they bring as to an unintentional pursuer is still considered a pursuer in Jewish law. And therefore, in this case, you'd be allowed to kill if there's, if there's shooting missiles from a schoolyard, there's no question, you can shoot back, even though there'll be collateral damage. Okay, so, so clearly, based on many, all these reasons, I don't think there's any problem, as you say, to go ahead and in there and going to morale for sure, you can carpet bomb Gaza without any problem at all. Um, even if you don't agree as far as the morale, there are other, other clearly other principles which will allow us to, to, uh, to shoot at, even though innocent civilians will clearly be killed. And even if it's children. Every war, the amazing thing is that happens in every war. Right, that's what war is. Vietnam, it's like, yeah, they always did that. They always did that. That's right. America did it, every country did it. But here, when Israel does it, it's like, yeah, of course. So clearly, the point is just even assuming what I'm showing is from the Torah very clearly, we have every right to do everything that's being done, plus much more. So we need to pray, as we said, step number three. I think all we have left, we did the appeasement, we did the, did the war, all we have left is prayer. Mm-hmm. So uh, step number three, so I think that's what we got to do. And hopefully with our prayers, prayer should be answered and the enemy should be destroyed very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.